All right, as you're standing, let the children all out and uh, remain standing. Don't, don't sit down. Uh, as the children are dismissed for Children's Church, I want you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament. That way you're not yo-yoing. The Old Testament book of Ruth, and we're going to chapter 1. So get your Bibles out, get your phone apps out, whatever it is you tend to use. Turn to the book of Ruth. So children, you're dismissed to Children's Church. And uh, your children's church workers are meeting you out there. Parents, if you have not signed them in, go take them out. Sign them in so that you'll get a ticket and, and be able to claim yours uh, other than by DNA. So, all right. Ruth chapter 1. For those of you that are remaining, we're going to start a series of walking through the book of Ruth. Ruth is one of those books. But it's one of those little short stories that is filled with so much that we need to hear. And, and, and as I was praying about where we would go after Easter, Ruth kept coming to my mind. The kinsman redeemer, our Savior who died on the cross, who redeemed us from our lostness. I was teaching my Sunday school class this morning that Colossians says that God took our sins and he nailed them to the cross so that we could have forgiveness. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Here's what it says. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judea, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his sons Malon and Chilion, Epaphrodus, uh, of Bethlehem, Judea, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Amalek, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left of her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they dwelled about there about ten years. Malon and Chilion died, also both of them, and the women were left her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and she, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and the two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went their way and returned unto the land of Judah." Father, we ask that you'd bless the hearing of your word and the reading of your word. Now I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would use me to bless the preaching of your word, that, Father, that we might hear and respond to the word that you have given to us this day for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Now, the book of Ruth is, is one of two books in the Bible that are given names of women that are written about women, all right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that as I go along. W.G. Uh, Heslip uh, writes, the book of Ruth consists of less than 100 verses, and yet it would be impossible to exhaust it during a lifetime of a minister's preaching from it every Sunday. It is a garden enclosed, a minefield uh, with... Uh, rarest and richest gems and rubies, a treasure of illuminating truths. Now, in the book of Ruth, there are scenes that are tragic, domestic, romantic, dramatic, 
historic and even prophetic. Yet each scene is a minefield with precious gems. It is one of the few books in the Bible named after a woman. The first being Esther, a Jew that married a Gentile husband. And then Ruth, a Gentile who married a Hebrew husband. A fitting title for the book might have been, instead of just calling it Ruth, might have been the love story of redemption. The book of Ruth is a beautiful picture of the Christ's greatest love for us and the redemption that he purchased for us. The key word throughout the, the, the entirety of the book is found in, in chapter 2, verse 20, and I've already told you, it's the word kinsman. We'll talk more about that as we get closer to it. As we go through the book, we will see the love story of the redemption of Christ unfold, and we will be reminded that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And we'll talk about what that means for you and I who were once afar off but yet have been brought close into the family of God. The opening scene of the book is tragic. We find that there are three graves now in Moab. As we begin to look at what this means, we need to look behind the scene to find out what happened that there are now three more graves in Moab. First, we notice that the very first lesson that the, the Bible teaches us here is a departure from the Lord. Now, let me just kind of start off and remind you that no one typically just gets up one Sunday morning and just leaves God. No one just kind of says, I'm done and I'm gone. You know what it is? It's a progression over time. It's, it's little things that start off in our life, little steps that we take that, that get us on a path that leads to that final departure. We find in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now, um, what God does for us is he sets the time and the place for the event that is taking place. Now, just, just before the book of Ruth we find the book of Judges. Judges and Ruth go hand in hand in time, but yet one tells one story and the other tells another. You see, the, the word now connects us to the former book of Judges. Judges closes with the words found in Judges 21, verse 25, and it says, In those days there was no king in the land of Israel, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, can I just kind of get you to hear that? There was no leadership in the world at that time in Israel. And everybody did what they thought was right. Everybody was setting their own rules, their own parameters. Can I just remind you that it seems as though that's the way we're living today? It seems as though the world is, is on its own journey. They, they've said there is no God and, and, and there is no authority over us, so we're all just going to make our own decisions. We've got, we got teenagers that are making decisions. We've got young adults that are making decisions. We've got uh, middle-aged adults that are making decisions. We've got senior adults that are making decisions They're, because they think this is what's best for them. Without ever asking what God says is best for them. 
we got a time in our life in which we need to look around and see that this is the time in which we are living. So this book is prevalent for us today. It speaks into our hearts and into our lives. We need to be careful because I believe that we are on a departure from God. Our society is, is slowly but gradually departing further and further. We were in prayer this morning for the service this morning, and I believe it was Ron who, who made the comment during his prayer that we were once a nation that believed and trusted in God. We were once a nation that God came first, but he doesn't anymore. He's not even considered in the dynamics anymore. We're making decisions based upon how we feel. We're determining our genders by how we feel, not how God created us. We're determining our sexual relationships on, on what we want instead of how God created it. We're determining whether or not the church is relevant, not by what God has said about the church, but by what we think about the church. You see, the reality is that we are departing away from the Lord. It's, it wasn't a, a, a hop, skip, and a jump. It was a step here, a step there, and a step there, until finally we said, we're so far away from the Lord, we might as well just leave. It reminds me of the story of the older couple. And I've told this before. The older couple, they've been married for 60 years. Who's almost going to celebrate their 60th wedding anniversary, Joe, and, uh, and, and over here? All right, so this one really hits home. This older couple was riding down the road one afternoon and, and they happened to pass a, a little convertible and, and as they passed the convertible they looked inside and they saw these two young lovebirds and she was nestled right up close to him as he was driving that hot car and she was right there. And the wife looked at him and said, Honey, do you remember when? Do you remember when we were in love like that? Do you remember when we were close like that? When we, where we were right beside each other? The wise old man thought for a moment before he said anything that was going to get him in big trouble. And then he said this, holding tight to the steering wheel, he said, honey, I don't know what happened, but I haven't moved. Let me just tell you, God's holding on to the steering wheel. He's saying, honey, I don't know what happened, but I ain't moved. You see, our departure from the Lord is not what God has walked away from. We've walked away from him. We have left the Lord. And in those days, the judges ruled. People made their own decisions based upon how they perceived life. There was the absence of a ruler. There was the absence of righteousness. There was the absence of right and wrong. When the king of kings is not ruling in your life, there will be no righteousness. When one uh, has made Jesus our Lord and our Savior and our King, we no longer have the right to make our own decisions. We no longer have the right to say, I'll do what is right in my eyes, but I'll do what is right in his eyes. Many believers are doing their own thing instead of God's thing. They sit upon the throne of their life, and, and instead of God ruling over their hearts and lives, they're saying, I'm in control. The result of this tragic condition was a famine in the land. 
Famines in the Bible are often a sign of God's displeasure and even his chastisement upon the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 17, God said, In this, and then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up heaven, and that there be no rain, and that the land yield not their fruit, and ye, at least ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord has given thee. The famine revealed that there had been a national departure from God. For many years, we've been praying for revival, and right here in this church, every Tuesday morning, we do. And I read something this last week that hit me between the eyes. And it said, you know, maybe instead of praying for revival, maybe what we need to pray for is persecution. Because if the church isn't concerned about getting close to God while they got it good, Maybe if a little bit of hardship comes upon our life, we'll be ready to run back to God. So maybe we're praying for the wrong thing. Instead of revive us, O Lord, we may should be praying, O Lord, send forth a persecution. Send forth a dissettling of our souls. Disrupt our lives so that we will run back to God. In the opening verses of Ruth, we also see a personal departure from the Lord, not only just a national departure, which we see in our country today, but there was a personal departure as well. We see a husband and a wife by the name of Emelech and Naomi. They had two boys, Melian and Chilion. At the beginning, we learn that their tragic departure from the Lord. Now, there's a few things that we need to see about their, the tragedy of their departure. First of all, we get it from their names. The name Emelech means my God is king. So as, as he was born into this world and his parents looked at him and saw traits in him and said, this is a man who's going to serve God as the king of his life. And for many years, perhaps he did. But there was a time when he had let God no longer be king and he became king over his own decisions and began to make some poor ones. Amalek reminds us of the Christian that has served God and live for God because God is king in their life. But then, at a certain point in time, takes back over the reins and begins to live for themselves. He reminds us of the one who lived a godly and fruitful life, but sadly see that he also illustrates the Christian that was in the will of God, but then walked out of the will of God, living his life the way he decides instead of the way that God decides. Now, his wife's name was Naomi. Now, Naomi means pleasant, joyful. She reminds us of the contentment and happiness one can find when they live in a right relationship with God. When their service to the Lord is that of joy and desire. But she, like her husband, reminds us of how joy and happiness is lost when one is out of fellowship with God. A little later on in the, in the book, she comes back to her homeland and she says, oh, they say, oh, Naomi's home. She said, no longer call me that. For my days of pleasantry, of happiness, are gone. We'll talk about that later. And as we look at their departure from the Lord, we see a few things that we need to be reminded of in our own lives. We need to be reminded of where they were leaving. 
You see, we need to understand what the Bible says. The Bible says that they lived in the land of Bethlehem, Judea. Now, the home was the town of Bethlehem in the country of Judea. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. Judah means praise. They were living in the house of bread in the land of praise until they decided to pack up and leave. It reminds us of a believer leaving the will of God and getting out of the house of God. There's no greater place for us to abide than in the center of the will of God. There's no greater place of attentment that we can have than if we remain faithful to the house of God. To abide in the will of God fills our hearts with heavenly praise. To attend in the house of God feeds our soul with the heavenly bread. The will of God is a place of spiritual rejoicing and the house of God is a place of spiritual resources. This is the place that we find Amalek leading his family away. They first left the city limits of Bethlehem, the house of bread, and then they left the borders of Judea, the land of praise. They first got out of the house of God, and then they got out of the will of God. You see, the reality of the story is that it's that little departing that little steps that we think are innocent today but lead to an eternal failure. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Those little things add up to a devastating we said in, in the beginning of the, the text that, that, that there were three graves in Moab. And why was there? Because little steps led to a disastrous decision that led to disaster in their life. But we need not only to look to where they're leaving, but we need to look to where they're going to live, where they went to live. We read that they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, let me just stop real quick and just focus in on one word here, sojourn. I want you to understand what that word means and, and, and the, the, the text that we're all sojourning in this world. We're just passing through. If that would have been the case, if they would have just passed through, maybe they wouldn't have had the problems that they have. Sometimes we have pass-throughs. We have times when we, we have to pass through and go on to the next thing. But here's the problem. What the scripture says that they went to sojourn in the country of Moab ended up being something different. You see, in Psalms 108, verse 9, we find that it's an interesting description of the land of Moab given to us by God. We read that uh, the psalmist says, Moab is my wash pot. J. Vernon McGee, one of the guys that I love to read, and I've got many of his books uh, on this subject, he said uh, one way to paraphrase what God was saying about Moab is that Moab would be the, Moab is my garbage can. They were leaving the house of bread to live in the garbage can of life. They were leaving the land of praise for a life filled with 
trash. Moab in the Bible is a type of the old man and the fleshly desires of the old life. Amalek's journey to Moab illustrates a Christian leaving God and going back to the old way of living. I was once content serving the Lord, but, but I've drifted and, and, and stepped away, and, and, and now he's so far from me, I just think I'll go back to the way that I was. It reminds me of what Peter said. Do you remember what Peter said after the Lord? I'm just going to go back to fishing. I know that best. That's kind of us. We have a tendency of uh, uh, when, when we get ourselves out of the will of God and out of the fellowship of God, we tend to go back to that which is most comfortable to us, our old way of living. And so Amalek reminds us that, that as a Christian, we need to be careful in that we don't get so far away from God that the old way of living looks better than the new way of living. Let me just remind you of something. Something that we need to all remember about sin. Sin's one of those dreadful things that, that, that we get into that we wish that we hadn't because of what its effects are. But here's what it says. Remember this. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's why their sojourning into Moab left them with three graves. We all know how this happens. We start by missing here and there. Things come up, but there was no plan of us getting out of church and getting away from God. But in time, we find ourselves completely out of church because we found that everything else was drawing our attention more than the things of God. And then what we find is we eventually find ourselves doing things, going places, and living a lifestyle that we thought we would never be living again. And we find ourselves away from God. And so it was with Amalek as he led his family and Naomi out of the land of bread, out of the house of praise. We see that not only did they settle down in Moab, they were going to just sojourn, they were just going to pass through for a season, but they settled down in Moab to the point that their children took themselves wives of Moab. We read in verse 4, And they took them wives of, uh, uh, of the women of Moab, and the name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. That's not a sojourn. That's a lifetime. Marriage among the pagans at that time was strictly forbidden by God. The parents' departure only led to a further departure from the Lord by their children. Unfortunately, many of children today end up there in their adult lives living in sin because their parents didn't set the right example for them when they were young. That's why it's so important that we live the life that we're supposed to live so that we set the example for our children so they know. Trust me, no guarantee that they'll do what's right. But there is a promise that if we have lived our life, if we've trained them up, if we've done what we need to do, if we've prayed over them, if we have given them the word of God, if we have instructed them in the things of how to live, God promises they, they might just go away for a time, but they will come back to me. 
Oh, thank God that he honors the faithfulness of parents, even in the rebellion of children. You see, we see a departure from the Lord, and then we also see a result of leaving God, leaves with devastating results. But let me tell you that God never leaves us in the wash pot, in the garbage can. The Bible tells us that that God always comes after his children. He disciplines us. So let's look at the discipline by the Lord. Just as an earthly father will, will, will discipline a disobedient child, God will discipline his disobedient children who are straying away. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receiveth. Now, there's two words there that we need to, and we'll hear about. One is chastening, and then the other is scourging. Chastening is when we, you know, we, when we tell them, no, 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 don't do that. Scourging is when we have to whack their butt, get their attention. Maybe some of us need a little butt whacking with a two-by-four. Be careful, you might get it. First... He tells us that God chastens his children. The word speaks of child training, and it's like parents teaching their child what's right and what's wrong. Then we read that God scourges his children. The word scourge speaks of punishment. It speaks of discipline that is descriptive of giving a child a whooping that they need. When our children were small, at times we would, we would do things and we would say, that's a no-no, don't touch that again. No, no, don't do that. Sometimes we'd even, don't do that. That's not something you should touch. And we did it not because we're mean, not because we're hateful. Well, I hope not. We did it because we love them. And we don't want them to hurt themselves. How many of you think that when God chastens you, when God disciplines you, when God has to get your attention, oh, he's so mean to me. Reminds me of teenagers. Hey, I know. Picking on the teenagers. Even as adults, we don't like to be chastened. And we definitely don't like to be scourged. And we say, God's being mean to me. He's not fair. When the reality is he loves us so much, he says, you're doing something that's going to hurt you can't stand by and let you do it. We're chastened or training our children concerning what they should do and what they should not do. At times God says, that's a no-no, that's wrong. At times he smacks our hand, but then when we continue in sin, God takes the more dramatic measures. He takes us out to the woodshed and gives us a good whooping. He says, now get your act together. Because I love you. You could say that God sometimes needs to use the belt of wisdom to get our attention. As we look at Emelech and his family, we see the process and the procedure of that discipline. First, the first act of discipline is found in verse 2. We find the names of the two sons, Melion and Chilion. 
Now, let me just tell you what they mean. Milion means sickly, ill health. Chilion means puny, piney. Just a little stick of a thing. It would appear as though that perhaps God was trying to get Amalek's attention long before he ever left to go to Moab. And when the boys came along, the first one came along and, and he was sickly. God said, listen, I'm trying to get your attention. Draw near to me. Come back to me. And when that didn't work, the second one came along and he was puny. Amalek and Naomi continued to drift in their hearts away from God, eventually to the point of leaving Bethlehem. A departure from God always begins on the inside, long before it ever shows up on the outside. Did you get that? You see, we depart from God in our hearts ever before we do on the outside. We're, 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 by the time that we leave the church, by the time that we have, have done the, the sinful things, we are so far from God in our hearts that it doesn't bother us anymore. And that's where they were. These boys seem to be the first act of God's discipline in their life, trying to get their attention. One day God gave them a little boy, and yet the child was unhealthy. He was sickly. In the Bible, parents oftentimes name their children based upon the characteristics of the child or a message received from God. And, and so as they held this little fellow in their arms and he was sickly, she named him Melian, sickly. It was as if God was saying to them, this sickly child is my wake-up call for you. God is speaking to their hearts. It was not as if God was smacking their hands and saying, that's a no-no. You need to get right once again and walk with me. Both of their children now would suggest that God had been trying to get their attention for quite a while. Let me just say this. Isn't it good? Aren't you glad that God doesn't just speak once and then walk away? Aren't you glad that he's a God of second chances and third chances and he continues to try to get our attention and says, listen, I don't want to lose you. I want you to come home. I'm glad that God loves us that much. That even when we're walking away, he says, oh no, not without a fight. Not without a fight. The fatal act of his discipline the first act is trying to get our attention. The fatal act, God chastens us so that he can get our attention. When that doesn't work, he scourges us. The first warning was ignored, and finally God's discipline became tragic and fatal. We read in the scripture in verse uh, 3, and Amalek, Naomi's husband, died. Then just a couple of verses later in verse 5, and Melion and Chilion died also, both of them, in the land of Moab. Now there's three more graves because we have wandered away from God. There are times when God must deal with his children in a firm way. He even declares that there are times that he must deal with us in a fatal way. Now Paul in the New Testament reminds us of this. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, he says, For this cause, many of you are weak and sickly among you, and even many sleep. What God was saying was because of your rebellion, because of your disobedience, because you're not willing to listen to my chastening, because you're not willing to come back to me, I now have to take things more serious. And he said in the New Testament, in the church, that there were people that were sick, afflicted, and even some that had died because of their disobedience. Now, I'm not trying to make God look like a mean-spirited guy because we all know that he's not. We remember the book of Jonah that we just finished where Jonah received time and time again opportunity to, to, to repent and to come back to God. Thank God that he's the God of second and third and fourth chances. Whenever a Christian gets out of the house of God and they are out of the will of God, they will get disciplined. He will deal with them patiently and lovingly. But I want to tell you, my friends, I want to warn you that in time, if we don't listen, if there's no repentance, there's no return home to God, he will deal in a more drastic measure, even fatal. A departure from the Lord always brings God's discipline in our life because it is by the discipline of the Lord that he brings us back to himself into that right relationship. The last thing I want you to see from the text here this morning is the desire for the Lord. You see, I think that after we go through those times and we realize that God's been trying to get our attention, I, I know many of us have, have run back to the Lord and said, I get it now, I get it, I get it, I get it. I'm coming home. We've gone through a lot, but, but revival has happened because the, the hardships of life have gotten our attention. Now there's three graves and three grieving widows in Moab. No doubt as Naomi walked to the cemetery to visit her husband and her son's graves, she probably said to herself, why did we ever leave Bethlehem, Judea? Why did we come to this God-forsaken place? Why did we ever get out of God's house, out of God's will? She no doubt recalled the days when God was king and the days when happiness was enjoyed. Life had been so pleasant, but now was so sorrowful. Then we read in verse 6 that she arose with her daughters-in-law and she, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that God had visited the people and given them bread. In other words, God had showed forgiveness unto those that had sinned. And now she was going to the place where she might find that forgiveness for her sin. She's going back to the house of God. She heard of how that God blesses when his people repent. How that famine was over because the people had come back to God. It was this news coupled with the, all that had happened in her life that created her heart to desire to return to God. And there's a couple of things that we see in her desire. First, we see her desire for repentance. It's interesting how her actions are described. 
It was not just that she returned to Bethlehem, Judea. She was turning her back on Moab, on her sin. She was leaving it behind. You see, repentance is making a change. It's not making just a little change. A lot of people think if they can just change a little bit, that'll be good enough. No, repentance demands that we were walking away from God. We don't just turn to the right or turn to the left, but we turn around and say, God, I'm coming home. I'm leaving all that behind. I'm coming back. Repentance is when we turn from our sin and say, I don't care about it anymore. I care about getting right with God. How many of us need to repent? We've been playing around with it, but really we need to repent. We need to come back to God. Kevin, come pray with him. We need to come back to God. We need to repent. When people get right with God, they're is a time of repentance. The sins and failures of life are dealt with by God. They're nailed to the cross, covered under the blood. But Moab must be left behind. It must be put behind us. Sin must be confessed. Sin must be forsaken. Before she could ever return home, she had to leave her sin behind. She had to leave Moab. We also see that not only was there a desire for repentance to leave Moab behind, but there was a desire for her return. She knew where she was going. She remembered where she had left. She remembered the land in which she had left. She had left the land of bread, the land of joy, of praise. And she said, I've been living in the land of sorrow. I want to go home where there's joy. The joy of my salvation is renewed. The hope of my eternity is renewed. I want to go home to the land where my father is. We find in verse 7, wherefore she went forth from the place where she was. Her due daughter-in-laws, and they went to return into the land of Judah. She returned to the place of blessing. She came home back to the will of God. She's leaving the place of sin behind, heading for the restoration of blessing in her life. Josh, will you go get the children's church and bring them up for me? Maybe you're here today. Life is like Naomi. Or maybe another story fits you better. In Luke's gospel, we read the story of the prodigal son. The guy who had it all but didn't know it asked for what he could get so he could go and squander it, ended up in the pig pen of life, but knew that there was something better at home. And so he decided one day to pick up the pieces of his life and go home in repentance. But like we'll see in the book of Ruth, we saw in, in the prodigal story, 
that when the son came home, the father didn't belittle him, he didn't berate him, he didn't kick him out. He welcomed him with open arms and said, come home, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Come home. Maybe you're here and you are like the Naomi. You're, you're living in the land of sorrow and you want to return to God. Maybe you're like the prodigal. You're living in the pig pen of life and you say, it's just not worth it. I want you to know there's a father waiting for you to come home. There's a land of joy again. If you'll find yourself in those foreign places making your home there, listen to the still small voice that says, this is not home. We should not be here. Run towards home. Come home, my son. Come home. Our Heavenly Father is waiting to receive us as dirty, as filthy, as sinful as we are. He's ready to receive us. Maybe there's someone else that needs to come home today. Maybe there's someone else in the next few moments that needs to come to the altar and acknowledge that God is calling you home. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you stand to your feet real quickly for me? Father, if there is more here today that have found themselves where they ought not to be, longing for where they should be, God, would you call them home? Would you let them know that there is forgiveness at the end of their journey? There is grace. There is mercy. There is love. We have departed from you, O oh God, but you have not departed from us. Would you bring us home?